Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On August 9, 1921, 20-year-old Comer Howell stood on the street outside his office at the Atlanta Constitution newspaper. He watched each car as it zoomed down the street in front of him. There was only one thought in his mind. Howell wondered what would happen if one of the cars hit him. Howell didn't normally dwell on such dark topics, but this wasn't a normal day. Just a few hours earlier, minutes before midnight, on the night of August 8th, Howell had stumbled onto a scene that would change his life forever. He found the limp body of 36-year-old golf legend J. Douglas Edgar lying on the street in a pool of his own blood. Police said that Edgar was the victim of a hit and run. But that explanation didn't sit right with Howell. First, Edgar's body didn't have a single broken bone. His clothes were in perfect condition, and the only noticeable wound was one gash on his thigh that caused him to bleed out. The hit-and-run theory didn't make any sense. Over the next few days, Howell's quest for the truth would uncover a dark history of adultery, jealousy, and violence. But right then, the young journalist only knew one thing. J. Douglas Edgar wasn't killed in a hit-and-run. He was targeted for murder. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on the death of professional golfer J. Douglas Edgar. This week, we'll cover the full investigation into Edgar's mysterious end. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. 
running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. When 20-year-old Comer Howell came across the body of J. Douglas Edgar on the night of August 8, 1921, he immediately ran for help. He bolted to the closest house and started yelling. Please help! A man has been struck by a car! He needs help immediately! Howell had no way of knowing that his frenzied words would shape the entire investigation into J. Douglas Edgar's death. His cries woke up the neighborhood. Soon, a crowd gathered on the street, and they all said the same thing. Edgar was the victim of a hit-and-run. Unfortunately, there was little to no evidence to support this theory. There were no skid marks on the road, no tears in Edgar's clothing, no visible scrapes or scratches on his body. But in the chaos, no one stopped to notice these small details. They were too busy calling an ambulance. It took an agonizing 25 minutes before an ambulance arrived at the scene. By then, it was too late. J. Douglas Edgar was dead. Detective J. W. Lowe pulled up to the corner of West Peachtree Street and Fifth, not long after the body was taken away. While he was not familiar with Edgar's celebrity or golf career, he did recognize one of the men who was at the scene of the crime, Comer Howell. In fact... Just about everyone in Atlanta knew the Howells. The family owned the Atlanta Constitution. The paper was an integral part of the city, and the family who ran it was just as prestigious. Comer, is that you? Detective Lowe, thank goodness you're here. This is just awful. It's not for the faint of heart, I'll tell you that much. Now, how exactly did you come across the body? I was on my way back from a late night at the office, and as soon as I turned onto West Peachtree, we saw the poor fellow just lying there, bleeding out. We talked to Mr. Wilson, who lives up there. He said you were the one who brought the incident to his attention, and that you called it a hit and run. Well, I... I don't know what it was. That was just the first thing that came to my mind. But you say you didn't see the incident. You arrived just after. Is that right? I mean... Look, I don't know what happened. I just said the first thing that came to mind. The body was in the middle of the road. How am I supposed to just- All right, calm down, son. It's okay. Maybe you should sit down and drink some water. We'll handle it from here. With that, Detective Lowe began to scan the area for any potential clues. He found one of Edgar's shoes still perfectly laced in a nearby bush. Then he found Edgar's golfing cap only 10 yards away from the body's location, Both items were in perfect condition. As Lowe moved on to questioning witnesses, Howell was finally able to calm down and start thinking like a journalist. An incredible story had just landed at his feet. He was an eyewitness to the mysterious death of one of the world's most famous golfers. He knew he had to write about it, but first he had to sleep. Howell headed home and climbed into bed. But whenever he drifted off, images of Edgar's body lying in a pool of blood would flash across his mind. The next morning, Howell groggily headed into the newspaper offices. As soon as he picked up the new issue, his heart sank. 
someone had already written about Edgar's death, and not only that, they'd done a terrible job. The article was a mess of misinformation and mistakes. The most glaring issue was Edgar's cause of death. The article said it was a clear case of hit and run. Apparently, while Howell slept, this had become the official story, and Howell knew it was all his fault. His frantic yells that night had already shaped the investigation, even though they were based on nothing at all. Howell stormed into the office and sat down at his desk. As he glanced through the article again, he was surprised to find one new detail that didn't seem completely misguided or wrong. It said a man named L.L. Shivers was the last person to see Edgar alive. So Howell decided to do some investigating of his own. Lester Shivers speaking. It's Comer. Comer Howell, down at the Constitution. I was hoping to speak to you about J. Douglas Edgar. I read that you saw him earlier in the evening, before the incident. Oh, sure. That's right. We had played a few rounds of golf, and I invited him back to my house for supper. Afterwards, we played a few hands of bridge and chatted until about 11.30. He was happier than I had ever seen him. Pretty drunk, too. I had to drive him home myself. As soon as I got back, my phone rang with the news that he'd been hit by a car. Allegedly, sure. What's that supposed to mean? Oh, sorry. Nothing. My deepest condolences. You don't have any new information about the vehicle that struck him, do you? We aren't even sure that there was a vehicle, so... No, no. I'm sorry, Mr. Shivers. We don't. Howell thanked Shivers for his time and hung up. At first, the man's story seemed quite normal. There was nothing out of the ordinary, aside from one thing. Howell had grown up in Atlanta's Upper Crust. He knew how men like him and Edgar were expected to behave. And playing bridge and excessive drinking was not it. Maybe there was another side of Edgar that Howell didn't know about. Howell sat at his desk, scribbling notes to himself and thinking. He may not have known the whole story about J. Douglas Edgar's death, but one thing was clear. He wanted to find out. In that moment, Howell made a decision. He would do whatever he could to get the truth about Edgar's death, no matter what it took. Coming up, Comer Howell peels back the layers of J. Douglas Edgar's complicated life. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? 
It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now, back to the story. On August 9th, 1921, 20-year-old Comer Howell awoke to find that news of Edgar's death had spread around his hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. But everyone was blaming it on a hit-and-run driver, and that explanation didn't sit right with Howell. That day, Howell put in a call to Tommy Wilson, Edgar's former roommate, protege, and close friend. Oh, I still can't believe he's dead. To be run over by a car like that. How can it be? I just don't understand, Howell. Funny you should say that, Mr. Wilson, because that's what I'm thinking. I think that maybe the police are wrong about the hit and- I've known Edgar since I was a boy. He taught me everything I know about golf, about life. Oh, uh, yes, it does seem he was a very well-liked man. But to go back to the matter of Edgar being a victim of a hit and run, I actually believe that I'm going to have to send a telegram to his family, aren't I? What on earth am I going to say? How do you tell a wife that her husband has been killed? Well, I... I... I don't know, Mr. Wilson. I'm so sorry. Howell continued to interview a number of Edgar's closest friends that day, but each call went about the same as Wilson's. Everyone was still in shock. No one was in a state to discuss potential theories. So Howell decided to change his approach. He set his phone aside, then he went to the police station to try and sit down with Detective Lowe. Good afternoon, Detective. I was hoping you could spare some time to discuss the Edgar case. (sighs) Not much to discuss, but sure. Pull up a chair. Well, any leads? Anything at all? Plenty of people claiming to have heard the sounds of a speeding car that night. One even said they heard a body thumping. But this happens every time a hit and run makes it to the press. Suddenly, everyone in a ten-block radius remembers the faint sound of car tires squealing. That's disappointing. Well, actually, there was one testimony today that stood out. It came from this fellow, Irvin Fisher. He was conducting a streetcar that ran just past West Peachtree around 11.40 p.m., only minutes before you drove past the scene. Sounds about right. What did he see? According to this Fisher fellow, he saw three men standing on the southwest corner of West Peachtree and Fifth. They didn't appear to be waiting for the streetcar but Fisher claims they looked like they were waiting for something. Or someone. All right, all right. Slow down, Mr. Newsroom. To Howell, this felt like his first real lead. Everyone else might have been satisfied by the hit-and-run story, but Howell wasn't. So he headed back to his office and made one last phone call for the day. He had the operator connect him to Dr. George Noble Jr., the man who had inspected Edgar's body after it had been taken into the hospital. What Noble told Howell only confirmed his suspicions. Edgar's body didn't have a single broken bone. There was barely a scratch on it. Well, aside from one small incision on his left thigh, six inches above the knee. 
The tiny cut seemed insignificant, but it actually severed Edgar's femoral artery and caused him to bleed to death. Howell tried to imagine how a car could wound someone like that without leaving any other marks on the body. It seemed nearly impossible. Edgar's cut was precise. It was purposeful. It was murder. As Howell tried to uncover the truth in Atlanta, news of Edgar's death began to spread across the globe. Newspapers in Ireland, England, France, Scotland, and Germany all ran stories about the famed golfer whose life was cut short by a hit and run. And unfortunately, the news traveled faster than Wilson's telegram. Hey, you! You're that golfer's kid, right? Why, yes, I suppose that's me. Oh, a real sad thing about your dad. I was sorry to see that. He was a legend. What? What do you mean? You mean you don't know? Look at the paper! A car struck him dead in the street. <gasps> oh. oh no! Dad! <laughs> uh, you can keep that copy, miss. When Wilson found out how Edgar's family heard about the golfer's death, he decided to call Comer Howell once again. The man seemed heartbroken about Edgar and his family, and he wanted to reminisce with Howell about his friend. First, Wilson regaled Howell with stories about Edgar's golf game, how he had revolutionized the sport, invented a new swing, and won tournament after tournament. But eventually, the conversation drifted towards the less favorable aspects of Edgar's personality. The man was a gambler and a heavy drinker and had been known to spend a lot of time with women who weren't his wife. When Wilson finally hung up, Howell's mind was racing. A man with vices like Edgar's likely had as many enemies as friends. Any one of them could have wielded the blade that sliced Edgar's femoral artery. But just as Howell was getting lost in his thoughts, a surprise visitor burst through his door. Golf pro Howard Beckett. This was no accident. Excuse me? You're the journalist that was there the night Edgar died, right? Well, you better do something about all this hit-and-run nonsense. I do not believe for one second that Edgar's death was an accident. Then you've come to the right place. But why's that? Edgar had his fair share of demons. He bet on himself with money that he didn't even have yet. So you think he was killed over gambling debts? No, 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 no. But I think he was killed over something. The cops may not be interested in this one, but I'm telling you, nothing got Edgar in trouble quite like women. There's more than a few angry fathers or husbands out there who might have been inclined to get even with him. Coming up, Comer Howell goes public with his theories, and we decide which one sounds like the truth. And now, back to our story. The more 20-year-old Comer Howell dug into the death of J. Douglas Edgar in August of 1921, the less it seemed like a simple hit and run. But no one, not even the police in Atlanta, Georgia, were willing to listen to him. So Howell decided to look into the case himself, and just as it seemed like he'd hit a dead end, Howard Beckett burst into his office with crucial information. 
Beckett was an old friend of Edgar's, and not only did he think that the hit-and-run story was false, he believed Edgar was murdered. According to Beckett, it likely had something to do with one of Edgar's recent affairs. Beckett didn't know the woman's name, but she was the wife of a florist in town. Apparently the husband had a temper, and he had connections with some dangerous people. Howell took this information into consideration and continued his investigation. Once Beckett left, Howell called Detective Lowe at the Atlanta Police Department. It turned out that Lowe had received an anonymous tip about Edgar's case. A mysterious vehicle with a man inside was parked around the corner of West Peachtree and Fifth Street on the night that Edgar died. The way Howell saw it, this was the killer's getaway car. That August night, Howell went home with all of his notes and files on Edgar's death and began to work out a timeline. It wasn't long before he had developed a full-on theory. Howell believed that when Edgar was dropped off by L.L. Shivers a bit after 11.40 p.m., he stood near the curb to practice his golf swing, as he was known to do. This brief moment would leave Edgar distracted and vulnerable, just long enough to be jumped by the three men who waited only feet away. Edgar's hat and shoe were knocked off in the struggle. Finally, one of the men stabbed Edgar in his upper thigh with a dagger or stiletto and severed his femoral artery. They left him on the street to bleed out. Hal was certain that he'd cracked the case, or at least found a version of Edgar's death that made more sense than the hit and run. He also knew that he was just a 20-year-old kid who worked at his parents' newspaper. There was no reason for anyone to listen to him, but he still had to try. On the morning of August 10, 1921, Howell arrived at the Patterson Funeral Home to testify at a coroner's inquiry. If the jury determined that Edgar's death was a homicide, it would trigger an investigation and maybe even an arrest warrant. But if the jury deemed it an accident, the case would be closed. 30-year-old Paul Donahue opened the inquiry by interviewing Dr. George Noble Jr., He asked the man to lead the jury through the final moments of J. Douglas Edgar's life. So it was the small wound on Edgar's left thigh that led to his death? Correct. A puncture to the femoral artery caused massive blood loss. Is it immediately clear to you what could cause such an injury? To be honest, the cut was rather curious, and the tear in Edgar's trousers is even more strange. It's small, like whatever cut him was thin and sharp, like a pocket knife or a stiletto. Hmm, I see. But was there not also severe bruising on Edgar's legs? Signs of the car's impact. Well, I don't know if you can say severe. There was bruising on the deceased's ankles, yes. But severity is difficult to properly judge due to the blood loss. Dr. Noble, in your opinion, do you believe that these injuries you speak of could have been the result of an automobile collision? Uh, well... Would you like me to repeat the question, Doctor? Well, I suppose it is possible, yes, that these injuries could have been sustained from a hit-and-run incident. It is within the realm of possibility, yes. Fantastic. No further questions. Howell was both appalled and unsurprised by what he saw. Donahue clearly had his mind made up already. 
He wasn't interested in hearing any evidence that didn't reinforce the established narrative, and Noble apparently didn't feel like arguing with him. But the man's testimony gave Howell faith in his own theory. There were too many holes in the hit-and-run story, and so if Noble wasn't willing to speak out against Donahue, then he would. The rest of the day held testimonies from friends and colleagues of Edgar's. None of them had anything particularly insightful to add. Just when Howell thought he couldn't listen to another golfer or drinking buddy talk about a heartbreaking hit and run, the jury was adjourned for the day. They were ordered to report back at 9 a.m. the next morning. This was both a blessing and a curse for Howell. It gave him time to go over his facts one last time. He went to bed and woke up the next morning ready to go. The first to speak was Detective Lowe. Howell had faith that Lowe would lay out important evidence that would help him later vouch for his own theory. And he did exactly that. But Donahue seemed to be far more irritable than he was the day before. Every time the detective tried to provide the jury with evidence that suggested Edgar hadn't died in a hit-and-run, Donahue would grow impatient and cut him off, and then dismiss his information entirely. After almost an hour of questioning, even the hardened detective was worn out. Finally, he conceded that, yes, it was within the realm of possibility that Edgar died from nothing more than a speeding car. Finally, there was one witness left. Comer Howell. Donahue began by asking Howell about the events of August 8, 1921. But it wasn't long before Howell had steered the conversation towards Edgar's cause of death. Mr. Howell, is it correct that you were among the first to proclaim that Edgar had been the victim of a hit and run? Listen, I made a mistake. It was a terrible and careless mistake. I had been concerned with the vast number of automobile accidents in Atlanta over the past few months, and my mind jumped to this rash conclusion. But this was not based on any concrete evidence, just my own personal worries. Mr. Howell, is it not true that even after your initial discovery of the body, you reported to Mr. Wilson that Mr. Edgar had been struck by a car? Were those not your very words? They were. This is true. But I'm telling you, these were the actions of an impulsive and frightened young man. To you, the jury, and the people of Atlanta, I sincerely apologize for my failures of foresight and youth. I was wrong. And what of this change of heart? Is this not also the fault of your naivete? There were no skid marks, no broken bones in Mr. Edgar's body, no dirty or damaged clothing, absolutely nothing that would imply that a vehicle had struck Edgar and sped off into the night. Besides, the wound that has been confirmed to have led to Edgar's death is an incredibly small and precise puncture. The man hardly had a scratch on him, save for this slight but seemingly intentional wound. I be- That's enough, Mr. Howell. Given what you have heard from the others in this jury, do you or do you not believe that J. Douglas Edgar was killed by an automobile? I do not. With that, Donahue shooed Howell off the stand without a word, but Howell was still proud. He had stood up to the man and shared his truth. Now it was up to the jury to decide if it was enough to change their minds. In fact, it was. The jury adjourned that day without reaching a verdict, meaning that some of them now doubted the hit-and-run story. But as good as Howell felt in that moment, it was a small victory. 
the case was far from solved. Unfortunately, by the fall of 1921, the investigation had gone completely cold. Detective Lowe could only investigate rumors for so long, and eventually his attention was pulled onto new and more pressing cases. The death of J. Douglas Edgar faded into memory. For everyone but Comer Howell, at least. Howell still thought of Edgar frequently. On one cold winter morning, he decided to stop by and pay his respects at the man's grave. But before he could get there, he saw something that stopped him in his tracks. There was someone else at the grave. A woman. She was young, with a slender frame draped in a dark coat. She was crying. Howell immediately knew who the woman was. The wife of the florist that Beckett had talked about all those months ago. Howell watched as she placed her hand on Edgar's headstone, and he knew that he had been right. Howell knew that he had done what he could for J. Douglas Edgar, so Howell walked through the graveyard and climbed back in his car. He had tried, and sometimes that was all you could do. With all this in mind, I think Howell's theory was correct. Edgar was likely murdered by the florist, or by some of the florist's dangerous friends. I'm not so sure that there's enough evidence to tie it to the florist directly, but it's hard to believe that this wasn't a murder. Just take the wound that killed him. The cut was too precise and well-placed to have been accidental. Whatever the case may be, J. Douglas Edgar's death was a loss for the entire sport of golf. The effect Edgar had on the game's global popularity can't be understated. His methods are still being used by the best players today, and many of his records are still undefeated over a century later. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on J. Douglas Edgar, amongst the many sources we used, we found To Win and Die in Dixie by Steve Eubanks extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahay. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, and Drew Lawn. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>